Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. That was quite the intro. I believe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jacob, it was, was my that first, first time. time. That was my first time hearing the song. It was very cool. And it really does get you up in the morning. But for anybody that was like, whoa, that's a lot of techno and stuff. Really good song by TikTok Next Block Guys. Uh, it seems like Man Likes Wex and Real Richard. So uh, shout out to you guys for making that awesome video. Okay, shout out to them, you know, to each their own, especially with music. I, I thought that was quite aggressive myself, but hey, to each their own. Well, do you want to reset the room and just play the regular, or are you, or you just keep moving <laughs> no. on? Just take it. And no, go. it's all good. It's all good. I'm sure some people liked it. I'm sure some people thought, what the hell is going on right now? But that's how music goes. Some people love that. I'm actually into electronic music myself, but not that type of electronic music. That's a little too hard and aggressive for me. But again, I'm not trying to discredit it. I'm sure some people love it. And the last hard techno music at 10, 9 a.m., man, that's my jam. But also, I did not know Brady was the one that coined the term TikTok Next Block. I had no idea. I think that was, he says it was at block 599,927. He coined the term and I had, I never knew that. That I didn't know he coined the term, didn't know what block it was. Love to hear that. Terrence, I believe you had an idea or something for a TikTok account when using the tic- <laughs> oh, yeah. TikTok next block slogan. Yeah, like exactly. That. Yeah. Um, our model, cause Juan has a TikTok account that I think we're going to ramp up fairly soon. Yeah, it should just be TikTok next block as in TikTok via the social media name. Is anyone on stage now just an active person on TikTok? I'm curious. I haven't used it in a while, but sometimes I go through phases where I'll watch. Actually, no, I, I did watch it recently. And I think over half the TikToks or whatever they're called are ads. But yeah, I'm just passive. I just lurk. Gotcha. I think people at Davos really like TikTok. No one's complained about that, but they're complaining about Twitter a ton. (laughs) Yeah. I just asked because TikTok's one of those things. I get some friends who send me individual TikToks or whatever they're called, and I'll watch them, but I have not created an account. And I'm really hoping this is one of these platforms that I can just safely ignore and not actually have to participate in. But we'll see how things play out. Dom, I want to say good morning to you. What's the weather like in Davos today? Oh, dude, I'm trying. It's amazing. I'm just trailing the the CEO of the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, and then the scraps that he gets from the King's table, I'm going to get the scraps from his table. So by then, hopefully, it's going to be like, I don't know, like a blockbuster revival portfolio or something. Like, 
That's some who knows, but it's nice here. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Sounds like the cotillionaire effect to me, my man. <laughs> I just imagine like the pension funds at Davos and they're like, hey, no, look, I'm on the list. Okay. Like I'm on the list for this party. And they're like, sorry, dude. Like, see you at the conference tomorrow. You just are not, you don't have access here. Wrong bracelet. I heard there's rumors that Mitch was walking around Davos in that white tank top. And I hope someone can catch that on video. Are, are the rumors true, Mitch? Yeah, it's true. And like Dom said, I'm not on that list, but I definitely am on a list, but probably not the list that I want to be on. <laughs> we are all on some sort of list. That is likely true, my friend. Good morning to Chris and Terrence with 1R as well. How are you guys doing? Morning. How's it going? Morning, guys. Good to be here, as always. Excellent. Excellent. So we do want to chat about Davos. It's hard not to. So much content comes out of that, whether it's dystopian, censorship, content, tracking of the masses, mass surveillance, or anti-Bitcoin rhetoric. There's just so much that comes out of it. Man, where to start? I guess we'll start with Jamie Dimon. He made some comments, obviously, about Bitcoin and they were not too positive, as you can imagine. He referred to it as the pet rock, which I, I wonder if that will end up becoming a, a badge of honor, as, as Bitcoiners tend to do when someone says something negative about Bitcoin, they will turn it into something that, that we wear and promote proudly. I will say this about his clip. At one point, I was watching the clip, and I had to say to myself, I was like, is this a clip from last year? Because I'm sure you guys noticed, he almost said the same thing about how do you know there's going to be 21 million, Satoshi's going to pop out. He's literally almost word for word at that part was saying the same thing. And then there, there also were some old clips circulating online. I think Marty Bent did a fantastic thread about some of the authoritarian, dystopian type stuff. But I think there was a video in there from a year or two ago. And not like that diminishes it. It's still people at web type people in Davos making these claims, but it's hard to sometimes identify if these what year these videos are from. It's almost like these people are just, you know, they have a string on their back and you pull the string and they just regurgitate the same nonsense. But I did want to turn it to people on stage here. This is just a fun little debate. Do you guys think that Jamie Dimon actually has no idea how Bitcoin works? And shout out to VJ Boyapati put out a good tweet on this. Just calling out that it's pretty clear he has not even spent an hour trying to figure out how Bitcoin works. Because if he did, he would not be saying, making these statements. Do you think he actually has no idea how Bitcoin works? Or do you think he does know and he sees it as a big threat? Do you guys have any opinions on that? Again, small, fun thing to debate. It's not like this really matters for Bitcoin. But curious what you guys think. I get torn on this debate about whether they know or playing dumb. Because you hear that quote like, super high level skilled people know what they need to know about. And they're like, they're Jordan at that. And they commit all their time and effort to that. And so the possibility that someone at that level wouldn't know the intricacies of Bitcoin because they're performing at the highest level within the, the area that they're committed to is possible. That being said, you would think if knowing that this is going to be a topic of discussion, that, that, there's a team there briefing this individual that is more up to speed. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to tell. I go back and forth. 
Chris? Yeah, yeah I'll jump in here. Uh, I'll lay out the groundwork first things first. Like Jamie Dimon's not dumb by any stretch of the imagination. He's basically been the most prolific banker since the late 80s, early 90s. But with that being said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. I don't think, I definitely don't think he's put more than 40 hours of work into Bitcoin, at least for on a basis, thinking that you can change the 21 million supply cap. He obviously hasn't put hardly any work in. But with that being said, obviously JP Morgan is huge backers in consensus, the consensus network, and they're trying to push. He keeps saying blockchain, not Bitcoin. Like he wants to be the middleman in the grift of it all. Like he wants to be basically have control or either roll out a private CBDC or basically just control the network in whatever way possible and be a middleman to collect fees. That's definitely what he wants to do. Aside from that, he definitely uh, sees Bitcoin as a threat to his business model. And props to our boy Joe Kernan, like going back and forth and saying, oh, Bic like bantering back with him and basically saying it's the most historic asset or most prolific asset over the decade and stuff. And then I think the irony is not lost that JP Morgan and Jamie Diamond are like, he's, oh, it's only used for criminals, money launderers, and all of that. When JP Morgan's paid close to $39 billion in fees and their business is still thriving and afloat. So obviously he's pointing fingers at Bitcoin for basically money laundering and all this, where that's like a big part of his business strategy. And obviously it's pretty profitable being the largest banking institution in the United States, if not the world. Said, Chris. Said, I, I have some thoughts to share, but I see a lot of hands up. So let's go to our Terrence. <laughs> Said, Chris. And AKA yeah, that's a Toronto. lot in fines that they paid. How you doing, Don? That's a lot in fines they paid. So I just have two quick points. One is the reporters are not doing their job because we know that JP Morgan, it's widely known that JP Morgan is a market maker authorized participant for at least a couple of these bigger Bitcoin ETFs. That's number one. So how can you possibly take the stance you're taking when your own company that you're CEO of is making markets in Bitcoin? It seems hypocritical, or at least a question worth asking if we had real reporters. Number two is I go back to a time a few years ago when he was on stage and asked about Bitcoin, and he said almost verbatim, I believe, my daughter bought Bitcoin and thinks she's a genius. So I think this is a bit personal for Jamie. He knows better. There's maybe something going on with him and his daughter, and he doesn't want his daughter to blow all the, as the millions or billions she's about to inherit someday on, on Bitcoin and this pet rock thing that he still doesn't seem, he ostensibly doesn't understand. He is very smart. I think he's looking to make fees just like the Franklin Templeton. CEOs make, looking to make fees on the grift, on all these pump and dump scams, these bullshit DeFi projects and other blockchains and altcoins and so forth. Ooh, I know that one hurt the yesterday, day. Terrence, the, the Franklin <laughs> Templeton post. That one cut no, I loved it. deep. No, we, we knew she was going to do that because the Franklin Templeton CEO does sound like a moron on this topic and already signaled her lack of understanding weeks ago. Kill your heroes. Franklin Templeton was never my hero. <laughs> or Jamie Diamond, for the record. Record has, has been cleared. Sorry, Mitch and Terrence, I don't know who had to end up first. We'll go to Mitch first. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the same conversation people have about, about Larry Fink and people trying to analyze intentions, right? Does, is he actually pro-Bitcoin? Does he believe these things he says? Or is he just trying to make fees? And 
Chris alluded to this. I think the incentives are really what matters most. Jamie Dimon, he's at the current moment, he's disincentivized to promote Bitcoin, right? Because it's a threat to his business model. And Bitcoin is a threat to the traditional banking system in general. But Larry Fink, when you look at his incentives, he's now incentivized to pump Bitcoin, even though it's for selfish reasons, right? He can make money off of the fees. But I think slowly we're just going to see all the incentives sort of shift where everyone's going to have to be pro-Bitcoin and want Bitcoin to succeed. For sure, for sure. And I'll just give a few of my thoughts here, which is that I, I think both are true to some extent. I think it's fair to say that Jamie Dimon does not understand much at all about Bitcoin. I think it's fair to say that he has not done much research on it. But at the same time, I think he also does realize that it is some sort of threat to his business. And when I say some sort of threat, I don't mean that he believes like this is going to overtake the U.S. dollar and bring the fiat system crashing down in a matter of years. I don't think he believes that. But I think at some level, either consciously or unconsciously, he knows that he has if you just he thought about this hypothetical scenario, all RIAs, wealth managers, financial platforms, etc., are starting to recommend a 5% allocation to Bitcoin going forward. I think he knows enough to be aware that's not a good situation for JP Morgan to be in because they're not positioned to benefit from that. As I understand, the only way that they would benefit from that directly is they are an authorized participant on some of these ETFs. You guys can correct me if that if I'm wrong there, if they have some other direct kind of exposure to Bitcoin, but that's if that's all they have, that's not going to move the needle for JP Morgan's bottom line or their share price. So I think he knows enough to know that if Bitcoin just catches on in that way, that people, companies, family offices are starting to allocate 5% to it and that becomes normal, that's not good for JP Morgan. So I think he sees it as a threat in that sense, but I don't think he's actually done the research on it to know how it works. I think he, he is pretty ignorant there. And just one more comment about Jamie Dimon's comments on gold, I thought those are pretty telling. And I've long been a believer that in order to become a proponent of Bitcoin, it's a two-step process, I believe. The first one is understanding sound money. If you don't think that there's value in a non-state, immutable, fixed supply, digital, censorship-resistant, peer-to-peer money that does not need governments and banks... If you don't see value there, then why would you do a deep dive on how Bitcoin works, on how you take self-custody, on why there's going to be 21 million? You wouldn't do it because if you don't even think that there's a use case to gold, which is what Jamie Dimon said, he's I don't own gold, he basically doesn't see any value there, then why would you do a deep dive on Bitcoin? So I think the fact that sound money is confusing to him or he just doesn't see any value there, is going to prevent him learning about Bitcoin. Curious what others have to say. Also want to say hi to Tomer. Tomer, if you have any thoughts on Jamie Dimon not knowing why there's 21 million and how you typically explain to someone how we know there's 21 million, would love to hear that. Sure. Really quickly, I've had the opportunity over the years to speak to, not bankers as big as him because I'm in Canada, but to, to like really top bankers, chairmen of boards and CEOs of banking companies. And although it was year, it was years ago, it was the same sort of attitude. There was, there's just such a disincentive to look and such a desire to make it simpler. So I, I remember speaking to the chairman of the Bank of Montreal, BMO, 
about Bitcoin giving a luncheon teaching. And he was very much upset that they had been ransomwared about something. Uh, he thought the whole thing was clearly there for a criminal enterprise. And he wanted to dismiss it by saying, I believe in blockchain, which doesn't mean he understands even a clue what blockchain means. He just knows he doesn't like Bitcoin. And so he can say, listen, I'm not a, <laughs> I, I, I'm not anti-technology. I'm pro-technology. I'm just not in favor of this particular kind of technology. So I think that's not, it, it's shocking to see because it feels like it's 2018 again with Jamie Dimon's comments that he's actually not changed his view whatsoever in all that period of time. It really dug in. I think when it comes around to telling people how is it that the 21 million coin limit can't be changed by a single person, it comes down to the fact that every single person enforces that limit. Everyone who runs the Bitcoin software prevents anyone from issuing any more coins in any block than is, than is permitted by the code. And so everyone would have to agree to the exact same changes for any changes to take place. Satoshi could show up, he could run whatever software he wants, nobody will pay attention to an inflation change that he adds into the algorithm. And so they like, this is the amazing thing is like, you're in charge. There's nobody to look around to say who, who decides what the limit gets to be changed to. It's in the code and, and you run it. And so unless you change it, you're running a version of Bitcoin that will never have more than 21 million Bitcoin. And everyone's got the incentive to do that. Everyone who owns Bitcoin, because nobody wants the inflation. So that, that's a very quick uh, explanation of why you need not worry about Satoshi coming back and, and why Jamie Timon doesn't actually understand who's in charge of Bitcoin because he lives in a world where somebody's in charge of everything and can just give a top-down decision. Right? It's, well yeah. said. said. Yeah, Jameson Lop had a good tweet on this as he said, Jamie Dimon thinks Satoshi will come back one day and print more Bitcoin. How do you know it will stop at 21 million Bitcoin? He keeps asking year after year at Davos. And Jameson Lop goes, bro, it's five lines of code and not even Satoshi can force us to change it. So I would encourage people to check out that tweet from Jameson Lop. Even if you're not a coder and that this type of the text written as code does not necessarily make sense to you, there is some text there written in sentence form, which is one of them is subsidy is cut in half every 210,000 blocks, which will occur approximately every four years. So that literally is what the code says. And that, as Tomer said, that is what everyone runs. So the subsidy of new Bitcoin simply gets cut in half every 210 blocks. That's the way that there's only 21 million. Dumb, with a hand up. Before we move on from Davos, I just wanted to pose something to the room, especially being that we got some financial beautiful minds like John and Terrence, just geniuses in the room. And so maybe y'all can help me with this item. But the CEO of Ontario Teachers Pension Fund was at Davos talking to the media there. And he mentioned that he was concerned about liquidity for the pension fund because they have a significant, and for those listening, like a pension fund has to make payments every month to the beneficiaries of the pension. So they need liquidity to make those payments. And the CEO mentioned that they, or he hinted at, that they were possibly over allocated to private equity, um, things like the commercial real estate, private companies that you can't just move easily. And that a decent amount of that private equity 
is in the red. And so they're concerned about liquidity. We just saw Cal Sturs took a huge, like a 10% loan against their entire portfolio just to make payments. And then the interviewer says, okay, so what's the answer? And he doesn't have anything. He fumbles. And so obviously as a Bitcoiner, we think, wait a minute, here's a solution of something that doesn't depend on bank debt, something that could be liquid at the right time. We know there's volatility. We know that there's challenges potentially where you could be in the red. You have to have a long-term outlook, but also you know, having a, a small holding could provide short-term liquidity at the right time. And looking back to June, when we looked at that on the Nakamoto gauntlet, they're up 40% if they would have made a hypothetical 1% allocation. What are your guys' thoughts just on the state right now of pension funds having this liquidity problem? And if rates aren't coming down, um, like how they're going to navigate this and how Bitcoin can help? Yeah, I'll start. And then Terrence, I want to hear your views too. But I think you hit on a lot of good points there, Dom. It, I, I would hit on, if I was trying to convince these people in a room, why they should make a small allocation to Bitcoin. It's liquidity and diversification, I think, is just you cannot deny the benefits of liquidity and diversification that Bitcoin gives you. I would try to point them to what happened during the banking crisis in the U.S., which was short-lived in March of 2023, but it, it was undoubtedly a banking crisis, and it would have been far worse if the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC didn't step in more quickly. But people were worried. It, it's easy to forget because of how quick it was, but you guys probably remember there were lines outside of First Republic Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, and people were worried that their money was just going to go poof. Having an asset that you can actually access on a Sunday when you're wondering what emergency program is or is not going to get announced is very beneficial. That kind of liquidity is something that you simply cannot get in the existing system. And then diversification is supposed to be a principle that these people follow. You would think that diversifying a small amount, we're talking low single digit percentages to start into an asset that does not require the permission and approval of governments and, and execution of governments and banks in order to access it, you would think people would say, that's actually an asset that diversifies my portfolio from a return and from a risk perspective. And that's not just me talking about it. Dom, you mentioned the Nakamoto portfolio tool. We can actually look at this. And now we have over 10 years of data where you can look at this and people on Wall Street in TradFi love their historical data, even though they always give the disclaimer because their compliance departments make them. They write past performance is not indicative of future results, which may, may vary. That was literally on every single page that had a chart on it when I would present to clients. But we put the disclaimer on, but they're always using historical returns and risk to predict the future. So the, the fact that we now have 10 years of data should be more convincing to them. Last comment, I'll just say, I think it's, at this point, I think it's fair to say that the reason that any of these institutions, pension funds, whoever, are resistant to the idea of making a small allocation to Bitcoin, it's really not based on logical rebuttals that they have at this point. It's more so that this is CYA, this is job protection, this is groupthink, this is I don't have enough people, peers who I can point to who've done it, 
because it is just to throw them a bone. It is true that Bitcoin could go down 20, 30, 40, 50% after they allocate to it. And that's what they're worried about. They're worried about making the allocation at the wrong time. Then their superior is going to say to them, hey, you just made this allocation and it went down 40% immediately. What the hell were you thinking? And they're worried that they're not going to be able to defend it. At the end of the day, there are tons of logical arguments we could give them for why it makes sense. But maybe just more time has to go by before they're comfortable pulling the trigger. I think you hit on a really good point with the diversification. I just want to mention real quick is that traditionally, I think they and many of us and them have looked at diversification as real estate, equities, bonds, et cetera. But they have to. And all of us, I think something we figured out before them even is we have to start looking at diversification, looking at it as diversification from influence, from where assets can be manipulated, tweaked, um, suppressed. That's where we have to start looking at diversification, which traditionally people always thought, oh, real estate, it's insulated from turmoil. Nope, we learned not so much that we learned through major events and bonds. Oh, they're insulated. Wait, what about this runaway inflation? And oh, okay, we learned time and time again that these things that we thought were diversified are not diversified from being impacted by the Cantillionaire's game. So we got to convince them to do it. But obviously, it's going to be a slow moving ship. Go ahead, Terrence. Yeah, sure. Ontario Teachers has always been, or for a long time, been on the cutting edge or the bleeding edge of financial innovation. So they've invested in a lot of derivatives and structured products. I predict they'll be one of the first pension plans to ultimately invest in Bitcoin in size. I know we've had a couple do the shitcoin fund that Morgan Creek and Pomp, BlockFi, Rocket Ship, Get On Board guy promoted back in the day. So that's one. Number two, I think emotionally, Jamie Dimon, I still think his daughter buying Bitcoin was a re- big reason why he's so against Bitcoin. But the logical reason, the business reason is he's speaking to the Ontario teachers of the world because he wants them to buy JP Morgan's products and he's already said he's against Bitcoin. He wants to stay consistent, found other reasons to, or sorry, repeating the same script, so to speak, uh, a year or two later about how Bitcoin is for terrorists and should be banned and so forth. And he's currying favor with Elizabeth Warren. JP Morgan of all the banks may know the best how powerful the U.S. government is. So after 2008 and Lehman imploded, one of my smartest friends and former colleagues from Wall Street basically said, the government is basically, the federal government is basically trying to find, and the Fed trying to find any way they can to stuff JP Morgan with cash because that bank cannot fail. If that bank failed, it'd be over. We'd be in an economic depression possibly for many years. So I think because of that history and because of what JP Morgan stands for in the psyche of corporate America and how way too big to fail it is, that will be the last bank to, to fall, at least based on current and near foreseeable future conditions. Yeah, a lot of good points made by both of you guys. Bringing it back to Davos, I, I do have to give a shout out to our boy, Javier Malay, Dom and Mitch, while you guys are walking around Davos, please shake Javier Malay's hand for me. 
I, I just have to hit on this because it's wild to me. It's becoming somewhat normal just as more time goes on and we see more videos of Javier Malay, the, the novelty of it will wear off. But man, I just, I have to call out the fact that the now the leader of a country, I was just looking this up, Argentina is 33rd largest country in terms of population. And in terms of GDP, they're somewhere around 24, 25 largest GDP by country. And the leader of that country making statements like, do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonist of this story. Long live freedom, damn it. It's just, it's still mind blowing to me that someone in his position is making those statements. Shout out Javier Malay. I hope this guy continues to do what he does. I hope he wakes a lot of people up to the principles of limited and defined government. And just to see him with a World Economic Forum backdrop in Davos is just really mind-blowing. Not sure if he's going to get invited back, but he's making the most of his one visit, that is for sure. John, you'll if you want someone to give a shout-out to Belay, you'll have to ask Capital Terrence, a.k.a. Terrence, because me and Mitchell at Davos is like, in Dumb and Dumber when they're in Aspen with a scooter and they see everyone dressed up nice going to a, a nice thing. Like, we're struggling out here. We got no contacts. We're just in the snow. We're freezing. We see Terrence go by with an entourage. So he's the guy you got to talk to. I really need to make better use of these mid-journey type apps so that I can instantly create a picture of Mitch and Dom in Davos in the Dumb and Dumber doggy van. If anyone's listening and they're a, a mid-journey wizard, that, that's got to be created. All right, we're going to stick with, I guess this isn't Davos, but it's CBDC related. Just want to let people know that this, this, uh, this is a head newsworthy, I would say. So Trump did make a statement. Uh, I'll just summarize it here. Basically, I will never allow the creation of a central bank digital currency. Such a currency would give the federal government absolute control over your money. Dangerous threat to freedom. I will stop it coming to America. Blah, blah, blah. Let's stop regulators from trying to debank you for your political beliefs. That will never happen while I am your president. CBDC is obviously something that we talk about a good amount here just because of how antithetical it is to Bitcoin. Trump has now gone on the record as being anti CBDC. Just wanted to share that point. We'll see if that ends up being. A big topic or not in the 2024 election. I'm actually rather curious to, to see if it will be. Sam has, Sam Callahan has written a ton about this. And his takeaway is that he thinks it's extremely unlikely to actually happen in the US. But we'll see. There, there's going to be some election cycle at some point, I think, where a CBDC is one of the top five topics discussed. Maybe it's not this election cycle. Maybe it's the next one. But we will obviously monitor that one as time goes on. Yeah, I think it's in line with the majority of the party, right? There's a lot of Republicans that have come out against CBDCs, so it's a safe play there. And additionally, we've talked a lot about, you guys can let me know if I'm off on this, right? That that with the consolidation of the banking sector and some big power players emerging, it seems much more likely that some kind of digital currency from the bigger banks somehow pegged to the dollar or something like that with maybe central bank handling more settlement rails or a settlement process. It offers a lot more 
in ways that the private banks can lure in your everyday user, right? Because they can offer things like zero balance transfers, a lot of perks and benefits that, from my understanding, what you guys have talked about can't be done on a CBDC. And so that seems much more likely an attack vector than a central bank digital currency. Sorry, Dom, which is the part you were saying can't be done on a CBDC? If you were to want, if you wanted to lure everyday people into using, you know, a, a currency and you said, here are, things, here are benefits if you hold this currency and use it. For example, you have a bunch of credit card debt, we'll offer zero balance transfer, uh, zero balance transfers or, or assistance programs with getting out of that debt. Um, you can earn yield by holding bonds where, you know, you can... Different perks, you can get loans at lower rates, things that only the private sector could do, whereas the CBDC couldn't perform any of those incentives to get people to use it. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess it depends how the CBDC is structured. It depends how much control the centralized authorities have over it. You are reminding me of a discussion, a woman named Saleh Amarova, who was almost appointed to a fairly high position, but believe in the Biden, yeah, I believe it was Biden who almost appointed him up her, but she didn't get through. She did an interview with Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway on their Odd Lots podcast. And she was just like calmly outlining exactly the vision that she had for an enlightened financial system. And she was basically talking about a CBDC type structure doing the things that that you mentioned, Dom. She was saying that you could basically just divert new tokens to new industries. You could give some people yield. You could not give other people yield. So I guess it depends how much control they have over a future CBDC. These systems could be structured many different ways. It really just depends how how authoritarian they want to be about it. Where they they probably if when they try to do it they probably won't go like full control to start but we'll see these things are in in their early stages for sure I think the larger picture here that is so cool is that everyone here is talking about if we just step back it's Jamie Dimon is talking about Bitcoin clearly he's either being disingenuous or He's presenting misinformation. I personally think he does not understand Bitcoin at all because there's no way you can understand Bitcoin and speak the way he is. Otherwise, give that guy an Oscar because that's the best acting job ever of how annoyed he is. And I don't think even Donald Trump, I don't even know if he understands CBDCs. Maybe Vivek whispered something in his ear and this is good for his platform. But how cool is it? And, And even Malay, and we've learned not to trust politicians because they've disappointed us so many times. But the conversations that are taking place, I don't think most people even understand what a CBDC is. Like we all get it, but it's almost the antithesis of Bitcoin. So as people here, as we approach the elections and whatnot, and they're listening to all these things and about independence and having monetary sovereignty and, oh, wait, what's the CBDC and our money can be controlled and turned off and our money can expire and you could be prevented from going from one zip code to the next and what happens if there's another pandemic and just people don't they live their lives as slaves and they don't really pay attention to rights and, and what money means. I don't know. I just think it's so cool that all of these quote unquote leaders are talking about Bitcoin and sovereignty and CBDCs, good or bad, or even if it's wrong, hopefully people will start to do their own homework. Like the conversation at least is there. 
Yeah, well said, Terrence. And was it you who had the tweet that was just highlighting the fact that the CEO of BlackRock and the CEO of Vanguard are arguing publicly about Bitcoin? Was that you? Yeah, that nice. the CEOs of the two largest financial institutions in the world are discussing, arguing about Bitcoin. Yeah, that this is definitely a moment where rewind the clock five years and you tell someone, hey, five years from now, the head of BlackRock and the head of Vanguard will be, and the head of JP Morgan will all be answering questions on very public stages about Bitcoin. And most people would be like, no, that's not going to happen. They're going to ignore it. So yeah, this is one of those things you have to take a step back and say, wow, it's pretty nuts that this is happening at all. And I will just read a quick sailor tweet here. And I think he did a great job summarizing this. If you encounter a strange new asset, parentheses, pet rock, circulating on a blockchain that quote unquote does nothing other than allow people to own something that they could <laughs> quote unquote trade amongst themselves without fear of debasement or theft, you have just discovered digital money, aka Bitcoin. Yeah, Sailor's basically pointing out how ridiculous it is what Jamie Dimon is saying there, that there's no use case for this quote-unquote pet rock thing. And I just compare that to the Trump tweet tweet about CBDCs or whatever. I'm not sure if it was a statement or a video by Trump. but And I'm not saying Trump understands this aspect of it, but it is antithetical. Bitcoin is antithetical to CBDCs. And for someone or even bank money that can be censored, right? Like the fact that JP, Jamie Dimon is not willing to admit that, it, it's just a huge blind spot. Whether he's aware of it or not is irrelevant. The fact that there is an $800 billion market cap pet rock that allows you to do all the things that Saylor mentioned, it's incredibly valuable. And it's just getting ridiculous to continue denying it. And last thing before I pass it off to the people who have hands up, I do find it funny how these people make statements like, this is the last time I'm going to talk about Bitcoin. Uh, Jamie Dimon just said that yesterday or two days ago, whenever it was. And I have a feeling it's not going to be the last time that he's going to talk about Bitcoin. And I was reminded, I'm pretty sure Steve Mnuchin, towards the end of the Trump administration, made some comment that was like, yeah, in a few years, none of us are going to be talking about Bitcoin. And a few years have already passed. All of these statements from these very successful and wealthy and high-profile people about, oh, we're not going to be talking about this in a few years. It turns out we're still talking about it. Dumb. I was just going to say to lowercase, lowercase Terrence's point, which, by the way, Terrence, that's nothing on you. You're an uppercase person. It's just that you're... Your name is lowercase, so I'm not trying to dig at that because you're very uppercase in your, especially shown by this gangster comment you just made, which is 100% true, right? It's being discussed by presidential candidates, including the front runner for one of the parties, which is a new thing, a little bit of a departure from the RFKs, the Vivix, et cetera, which is a big deal. The ETF managers, major funds. The discussion's happening, and if someone looks and if they Google CBDC, it is very likely that they will come across something Bitcoin-related, which is the opportunity for us as Bitcoiners to capture this interest, the curiosity from these public discussions and comments. And our work, it's a good point that like our work is not done because this is being discussed, if anything a new arena has opened uh, up for us to grab people that are interested and help show them real reliable resources on Bitcoin to help direct 
that curiosity. And so our workload is now massively larger. And the, the way we can capitalize on this is by talking to more people, trying to educate more people, supporting good content, and we'll be able to direct them away from the things like the scams, the shit coins, et cetera, which will be a much larger level potentially this time around. Yeah, I'm going a, I'm to a piggyback on that because I think Terrence and Dom, you guys bring up a really good point about it's just the fact that these conversations are being had, right? When Trump makes an anti-CBDC statement, I see a lot of replies like, oh, Trump did such and such and we still shouldn't trust politicians. And I agree with all of that, but I still think props should be given where it's needed, right? I saw this a lot with Vivek and he made a lot of good statements about Bitcoin, but people will sort of caveat Oh, don't trust him. He big pharma, whatever. He's he's pro crypto. It's, when they say good things, we should acknowledge when they say good things. That doesn't mean you have to trust them. It doesn't mean you have to vote for him. But the fact that these conversations are being had, it's a really good sign of where the Overton window is at. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think you tell people years ago that this would all be happening, and and they wouldn't believe it. It's like the boiling of the frog thing, right? It happens slowly and it's not as shocking. But when you take a step back, you say, this is pretty shocking that these conversations are happening at all. There is, I did want to talk about the whole tokenizing, putting things on blockchains, comments that Jamie Dimon made. Just to put this out there for anyone who hasn't heard about, most Bitcoiners probably heard the rebuttals to this at some point, but I'll just do it quickly. So there is a huge difference between an asset like Bitcoin, where this, this is how I would summarize it quickly. With Bitcoin, the token is the asset. If you're talking about tokenizing other assets, like tokenizing real estate, which is like some of the things that they're talking about, oh, there's value to tokenizing real estate and putting it on the blockchain. The token is not the asset. The real estate is the asset. And Corey actually had a good tweet about this the other day, tokenization means at best incremental improvement to financial IT. It's boring AF and doesn't matter. All world, all real world assets will remain adjudicated in meat space forever. And that last point I think is pretty critical because these assets that are getting tokenized if on a blockchain, quote, I say quote unquote blockchain because if it's a centralized blockchain, it's more like putting it on a database. These assets are already on databases. And that's why Corey says it means at best an incremental improvement to financial IT. If they start tokenizing these things, it just means they're going to share their data amongst themselves a little bit more efficiently. The blockchains, the databases, they're still going to be centrally controlled. There's no way JP Morgan is going to share information on a database that is truly decentralized and no one can control and edit it if they need to. So these things are obviously going to be centrally controlled. So you're really just talking about, hey, can we share data amongst ourselves as financial institutions a little bit more efficiently? It has nothing to do with sound money. It has nothing to do with a monetary asset that has value outside of governments and banks. So I think it's just worth pointing that out. But that last part is really important about real-world assets being adjudicated in meat space. If you own the private keys to your Bitcoin, you own the Bitcoin. Because again, Bitcoin is the asset. If you own a token that says, hey, I'm the owner of this piece of real estate according to this token, that can be overridden by two things. It can be overridden by the legal system fairly easily. 
and someone could just say, hey, you didn't, you were, didn't become the owner of this token the proper way, so you don't own it anymore. Um, or the centralized owner of that blockchain can just change the ownership of the token. So it, it's just silly to believe that Jamie Dimon says Bitcoin's boring, but oh, tokenizing assets is a big deal. It just completely misunderstands what tokenizing assets even means. So yeah, to tokenizing an asset is literally just saying we're going to open up a new Google sheet or Excel and have a new row. We're just going to list it on our Excel sheet that we can change at any point. But other people can come look at our Excel sheet, but they don't have read write privileges. That's all it is. Yeah, and it's just shocking that he's still making these statements. I, I get it. At 2017, people were saying blockchain, not Bitcoin, but uh, you've really got to try to put in just 20 minutes of thought on these things and stop repeating this nonsense. Mickey, what's up? Good morning. Yeah, I just I think people give these guys too much credit. Oh, he's a billionaire. He must be a genius. I, I think he's just a dumbass and he's really arrogant and he has obviously hasn't done the time. But people they give him like these genius like evil genius vibes they give him all this credit oh he's trying to dump bitcoin he's just trying to fill his bags he's trying to suppress the price i think he's just dumb and lazy and he thinks he's a lot smarter than he actually is yeah we were having a little fun debate about that earlier whether some bitcoiners are in the camp that he's playing 4d chess he totally understands bitcoin and this is all part of his grand plan Whereas other people are like, yeah, I don't know, man. I think he just has not actually done 20 minutes of thought on Bitcoin. My, my view was somewhere in the middle. I think he knows enough about Bitcoin to know that it's a threat to JP Morgan because they're not positioned to benefit from it. But at the same time, I think it's pretty clear that he actually has not done 20 to 60 minutes of actual effort understanding Bitcoin. Because if he did, he would have better critiques than what he does. If he was truly playing 4D chess and he understands everything about Bitcoin, he wouldn't be saying things that could be rebutted so easily. So, yeah, I, I don't think he's just, you know, 4D chess, understands everything about the protocol by any means. Yeah, I mean, I tell, also would say, go ahead. I was going to say the tell. So he, he mentions something like, oh, I don't own gold either. I like owning things that pay me income. So he's alluding to like stocks and dividends, right? And so that's just the Keynesian tell. He's just another Keynesian ideologue who doesn't attribute value to anything except cash flows and dividends. And so that's exactly like every economics professor I've ever spoken to in my entire life. And they're all just Keynesian midwits who think they can pull levers and manage the economy and do all these things. And they're not that smart. They just think they are because they have PhDs or a billion dollars. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I think they only attribute value to financial assets like stocks, real estate, things that pay them, things that they claim have intrinsic value. I think that is for sure true. And then layered on top of that, I think he's aware that his business is not poised to benefit from people owning gold in their portfolio or people owning Bitcoin in their portfolio. So I think those are the two main reasons as to why he's not going to start singing positive about, about Bitcoin anytime soon. Terrence, did you have something? Yeah, just real quick. My understanding is he only spoke about Bitcoin because he was asked about it and he's tired of being asked about it. I think he's frustrated, maybe said some things that he didn't 
really mean. But yeah, I agree with you, John, that he doesn't really spend time on it because his arguments are so bad and comical. But I think he is sending a message to potential clients and current clients of JP Morgan, the large institutions, whether it's Ontario teachers or others that are thinking about or bringing up Bitcoin to him or his lieutenants. And also people like Senator Warren that he wants to curry favor for, because let's remember, she got two Wells Fargo CEOs basically fired when they testified before the Senate, I believe, the Senate Finance Committee. You're not going to get Terrence on the diamond is dumb because he's a Harvard business grad. So there's a code there. It's not going to throw him under the bus. He's giving us just, sorry, Mick. Ridiculous. They look out for their own. That's a good point. No. Though. <laughs> Dude, you can't go to an alumni dinner, bump into Jamie Dimon and be like, bro, you called me dumb on, on a space. And it's, Dude, what happened to the alma mater? Dude, what happened to the, what happened to the family? Anyway, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. All right. We are coming up on the hour here. I do want to spend a few minutes talking about none other than the Bitcoin ETF flows, assets, after the first few days of trading here. As usual, James Seifert and Eric Balkunis are some of the best resources to follow here. A few interesting things. Also, shout out to Dante Cook of Swan, head of Swan Business. He's been doing anywhere from five to 10 minute daily recap videos. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm part of Swan, but I think Dante does a fantastic job. Good content. He makes it light. He makes it entertaining. Definitely check those out if you just want a quick summary of what's going on with Bitcoin ETFs. And he also he did some stuff on Davos too, so it was just like broader Bitcoin headlines as well. But there was a good summary tweet from James Seyford here. Day four ETF coin Tucky Derby update. Uh, so yeah, that would day four. So these traded last Thursday, Friday, Monday was a holiday, then Tuesday, Wednesday. So yeah, this includes all, all four of those trading days. And he noted a few things here. One is that GBTC is still accounting for more than half of the trading volume, but the flows into the other ETFs are ahead of GBTC outflows. The assets in aggregate sit at almost $28 billion. But there are almost 25 billion of assets still in GBTC. So those assets were obviously in GBTC for a very long time. Those are not new assets. If you look at a couple other things here. So out of the four trading days, Tuesday was a net outflow day. But then the other three days were all net inflow days. And what are the two big numbers that people are going to care about here? What are total flows? XGBTC for four days, almost three trillion, 2.89, no, sorry, not three trillion, 2.89 billion. And then assets are about 2.9 billion. Just a reminder here, difference between flows and assets. Flows are actual dollars that have gone into or out of these vehicles. Assets is the flows plus the price appreciation. So when you're looking at this over the course of four days, a pretty short time frame where Bitcoin's price has not moved by that much, that's why you're going to see flows and assets being basically the same number here. They're both about $2.9 As time goes on, that assets number is going to be pretty dramatically different than the flows number. 
So just to use the quick example, if Bitcoin's price doubled tomorrow, that asset number doubles to almost $6 billion, whereas the flows number stays the same, or it would go up in reality because there would be more flows in that day. But just a reminder for everyone, assets includes price appreciation or depreciation. So that's the summary of where things stand for now. You've got almost $3 billion of flows and assets in the Bitcoin ETFs, XGBTC. And there's probably some other stats I could share about where that stands in terms of trying to put this into context. Other ETFs, what kind of flows and assets did they see in their first few days? There's a tweet from Eric Balkunas I'll try to find. But basically, the takeaway is this is still wildly impressive for a new family of ETFs to get $3 billion in assets on its first four trading days is just wildly impressive. So even though the price has been a sideways chop for Bitcoin, I think it shows that these ETFs, there is interest in them. And keep in mind, this is with like, what has it got to be, four or five platforms? It's not just Vanguard, even though they're taking the brunt of it. But Vanguard and a few other platforms are still not allowing their clients to buy these ETFs. And you still have the slow burn of wealth managers, financial advisors. They're still going to do a little homework on Bitcoin before they start telling their clients to allocate to it. So I know I'm being a little long-winded here, but that's kind of the summary of Bitcoin ETFs for the first few days. And then last comment, I'll just say the top two have been BlackRock and Fidelity. And quite frankly, I think that's just a sign that people really do the name brand when they're looking at these ETFs, they see iShares, they probably say, oh, I own four other ETFs that are iShares by BlackRock. Oh, Fidelity, I've heard of Fidelity. So those are the two biggest. Then you've got Bitwise and ARK after that, and then it, it tails off with the others. I will just make a prediction. I think a year from now, BlackRock and Fidelity are going to be far and away the biggest holders of assets in these ETFs. Terrence? One thing is I posted about an hour ago, quote tweeting Bloomberg Eric, basically, bottom line, among all the ETFs in the world or in the U.S., there are three Bitcoin ETFs that are in the top 10 for inflows, right up there with VOO, this S&P 500 index fund by Vanguard, QQQ by Invesco, the tech stock ETF index and another one. So they're just like massive to have three of the top 10 have be, be Bitcoin ETFs in terms of total net inflows for the week. It's pretty impressive. Lowercase Terrence, did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say, at what point does Grayscale pivot? Do they not, they obviously see the large amount of outflows and they know their fees are five to seven times higher than any of the ETFs. So unless it's political or this was part of some agreement for getting the ETFs, I don't understand the business sense of why sure. they're just not saying, hey, 0% for the next 12 months or whatever. Yeah, I think they're playing a different game. They know that a lot of people are very upset with Gracia and just can't wait to get out. And so they're going to have outflows and they don't want to compete on price, obviously. And what they want to do is make as much money as possible off the people that stay, either because they passed away and their errors haven't gone at grayscale to, to move the assets, or they forgot about it, or they're just too lazy. So this is like the AOL model where no one uses AOL, but AOL was able to charge 
a fee just to use email to these boomers and seniors for a long time because there's this tale of people that never ever sell or they take a long time to sell. So they're just milking it for as long as they can. They are going to benefit from all the trading fees, from all the trading as well, because they still have a lot of liquidity. They're still the biggest with 25 billion or whatever it is in assets under management. Thank you, Double R. Nobody uses AOL. That explains why I'm the only one going on AIM and nobody's been responding to my away messages. I haven't seen people online in a while. That's just crazy. Shout out to AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. For anyone who's in their mid-30s, you undoubtedly used AIM and it was the biggest thing ever when people were in high school and college and that is now an artifact of history. All right, we are To this day, some of the best usernames of all time. Oh, 100%. 100%. I don't even want to tell you guys what my screen name was, but it was absolute fire. All right, guys, we are going to we're going to wrap it here. 11 o'clock Eastern in New York. As you guys know, we're doing hour shows now. I hope everyone enjoyed it. We also have Dom and looks like Mitch hopped off. He's already back to some probably side event in Davos. It's probably almost happy hour in Davos. So Dom, thanks for joining. I'm sure you base, you're probably ordering a cocktail right now at happy hour. So in, enjoy Davos. Drive around in that Dumb and Dumber van. Let everyone know that Bitcoin's here to stay. See if you can get Jamie Dimon in the van. Take him for a ride around town. I'm, I'm sure that would be a real big hit. Yeah, I'm getting ready to put on one of those. You know the thing that goes around the neck and it has like cigarettes, candy bars, etc. Like the little vendor thing, the old school. I'm getting ready to put that on and just trying to eavesdrop on some hot tips over at Davos. What else would you be doing? All right, everyone. Thank you for joining. This was episode number for the real dedicated fans out here. This was episode number 500. I've already lost it, Jacob. What episode number was this? 518. 518. This is episode number 518 of Cafe Bitcoin. So thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, we will be on tomorrow. Jacob, you correct me if this is wrong, but I believe Sam will be hosting for Swan Private Macro Friday. Uh, and we will see all of you guys then. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>